You know, or notice the women have like 1,500 stores to shop for clothes at. Men have like three, you know, unless you're like that perfect height of 5'10 to 6 foot. Then you can find all your stuff at Kohl's. Um, when you're more in the Napoleon side of things, you know, you have to dig around a little bit further. So anyway, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. It's good to see you all. So I, I said that in my email that I was going to do a sermon on strengthening our conscience as to how we obtain right standing with God. I'm saving that sermon for next week. Next week, I'll do that sermon, Strengthening Your Conscience Regarding How We Obtain Right Standing with God. Very, very important sermon. As you know, I'm doing a series of topical sermons right now as we finish the book of Malachi before we start into the 43rd book of the Bible that we'll be preaching through here at Mercy Seat. So what am I going to do it on if I'm not doing it on the road thing and I'm not doing it on Strengthening Your Conscience? I'm actually going to do it about youth groups. I know it sounds totally irrational, but at least it's somewhat associated with Mother's Day because young people have mothers. (laughs) So why don't we stand? We're going to read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. The epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. The scripture reads, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. The title of my sermon is, Why no youth group at mercy seat? Why no youth group at mercy seat? Let's pray. Father, we give thanks and praise to you for this time that we have in order to discuss this important topic. Lord, we just ask and pray that you would use what I set forth today regarding youth groups for good in the heart and mind of each one here. Lord, that each one would understand better their role and function, both as a father and a mother and also as children. Lord, that they would see the goodness of familial government and familial duty, and that they would do those, that they would not slough off their duty and responsibility on the state nor the church, but that they would do what's right in the sight of you. Regarding their office, as father, as mother. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Could be seated. So mercy seat is not a 501c3, and that is by design. Mercy seat does not own real estate and have a building, and that has been by design. Although at this time, we're open to getting a building. If for the only reason of, if the state ever tries to shut down church buildings again, we will remain open to pattern an example how the church should respond in the face of lawless civil magistrates. And Mercy Seat does not have a youth group. 
So we're not a 501c3. We don't own real estate. And Mercy Seat does not have a youth group, and that also is by design. And this morning, I want to address to you why we do not have a youth group. We have been asked so many times, why don't you have a youth group? In fact, we're asked, why do you not have all the usual kids' programs and fun stuff? We have had many who decided not to attend Mercy Seat or continue on at Mercy Seat precisely because we do not have all the kiddie programs and a youth group. So I want to give you a short list of some of the reasons we do not. There are more, but I'm going to keep it shorter and most important, I believe. The first is this. We do not have a youth group because we refuse to aid and abet the irresponsibility of parents. Many Christian parents throw their children into the government school to get their education, and they want to throw their children into kiddie programs and youth groups to be educated about the faith. In other words, they want to abdicate their God-given duty. Rather than do their duty and homeschool their children, or perhaps private school, they slough off their re- duty and responsibility to the state and send them to government school. And in like fashion, rather than do their duty and educate and train their children in the faith, they slough off their duty and responsibility on the church via kiddie programs and youth groups. And this is a huge problem. I know, because the vast majority of young people I've talked to see very little Christianity in their homes. Most men never do family worship with their family. We decided long ago here at Mercy Seat that we will not aid and abet the irresponsibility of Christian parents. Understand neither the state nor the church can be a substitute for parents and family regarding familial duties. You cannot substitute your role and function as a man, as a woman, as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother onto the state, or onto the church. You have familial duties that you must perform. The second reason we don't have them, we don't have a youth group here at Mercy Seat, is that is because the idea of youth groups is rooted in socialism and statism. The idea of youth groups is rooted in socialism and statism. First, it came with state-mandated education for 6- to 13-year-olds beginning in the mid to late 1800s, and then to secondary education beginning in the early 1900s. By secondary education, we mean high school education. You understand that. They're one and the same. Secondary education High school education, in other words, youth group age, 14 to 18. Just so you understand history and what a relatively new phenomenon high school or secondary education is, understand that in the year 1910, 100 years ago, only 18% of 14 to 18-year-olds attended secondary or high school education in America. And only about half of them, about 9%, continued in it to graduation. If you know anything about me, I've been at war with secondary education for a long time. 
By 1940, 30 years later, the number of American youth attending high school or secondary education had grown to 76%, with about half continuing to graduation. By the time I came along and was born in 1960, they had normalized it so that parents in our day have a hard time thinking outside the box when it comes to education and weep and cry when their children can't attend because of a fiction built around a virus. We've come a long way in 100 years. People think you actually have no normal socialization with the children or no normal life if they don't have high school to go to. All their friends are sports, you know. What a deprivation. And so people can't even think outside that little box. Well, I hope what I have to say helps you get outside that box a little bit. There's a great book you should read regarding John Dewey, who was the leader and innovator of secondary education here in America. It's entitled John Dewey and the Decline of American Education. I don't have a copy here with me right now. It is worth your read, John Dewey and the Decline of American Education. I also have a number of sermons dealing with education. I'll put two or three of them up online. So it saves you reading. I know a lot of people don't read anyway. And then you can get a bunch of great stuff just from the sermons itself. But there's also this work, which I encourage you to get and read, entitled The Messianic Character of American Education. The Messianic Character of American Education by R.J. Rushdooney. It is a must-read. Another great work, Education in the State by E.G. West, A Study in Political Economy. Education in the State, A Study in Political Economy. Another excellent work that I don't have a copy of here with me right now either is Dumbing Us Down by John Taylor Gatto. Dumbing Us Down. These are works that you should read, and there's like a million others. I have some really great books just on the history of how education bloomed in America. Very insightful, all rooted in statism, all rooted in socialism, all designed to be an attack upon the family. And yet the vast majority of Christian people send their kids off to these government schools and then wonder why they're crying in their soup as their kids are wreck years later. So state education came on the scene, as did communist youth groups. Shortly after state education was established, we saw the communists begin their youth groups in the early 1900s. They actually formalized them once they took power in 1922. Communist youth groups around the world, children separated from their families for youth gatherings, Hitler, Mussolini, and the National Socialists, not just the International Socialists and Communists, but also the National Socialists all did the same. All these communist socialist youth groups were meant to make a break between the youth and parents so that they could create within the youth a counterculture and more easily use the youth for the state's ends. Break down society from a Christian, familial society into a statist hell. And they've done one act of a job, and you got the churchmen and the Christians to thank for it all, because they've gone along with it rather than standing at war with it. 
The Christians, always wanting to imitate the world rather than simply live faithful to Christ. If you've been a Christian any time, you learned that early on. Christianity loves imitating the world. And of course, they never do as good as the world. And they usually look pretty dopey and dumb when they do it. But who am I to judge, right? We don't judge in this culture anymore. The Christians, always wanting to imitate the world rather than simply live faithful to Christ, decided they too needed youth groups, which in usual Christian fashion, started about 10 years after the communists. In the 1930s, we saw this sudden move to Christian youth groups. You can follow the whole youth group history in America, starting with Lloyd Bryant and Youth for Christ, on up to our present day. Interesting history, interesting read. They decided to create their own youth groups rather than just uphold the goodness of family and familial structure as God has designed and is clearly prevalent in his word. Understand there were no youth groups in Christianity ever prior to this. Prior to the 1930s, there were no youth groups ever in Christianity. Paul didn't promote them. The father... Church fathers never established them. The reformers never began them. It was dumb Christian men wanting to imitate the world that began in the 1900s. But for the 1900 plus years before that, they were never a part of Christianity. So for this reason also, there's no youth group at Mercy Seat. We're not going to aid and abet the irresponsibility of parents, number one. Number two, youth group is established is founded as the same mindset of status socialist thought. It's all rooted in socialism and statism. Scripture puts the emphasis on family government to train, instruct, educate, and raise children. Not the state. Not youth groups. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, you can mark that down, states here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's actually verse 4, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Notice what it says. We are to love him with all of our being. And yet, Christian people send their children off to the state to be educated in an agnostic form of education. It goes on in verse 6 and said, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Moses here is talking about the law of God, which addresses all matters of life. General education as well as matters of faith are seen in God's law. All of life is to be taught from a Christian worldview. And people send their kids off to be taught in an agnostic form of education. Ephesians 6, 4 states, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. Notice it doesn't say, Children, obey the state. Did you notice that? It says, Obey your father, and your mother, which is who you're to honor first and foremost. 
And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Notice it is the duty of fathers to train and teach their children in the faith, which covers all matters of life. So I've watched this all my life, where Christians, in order to get out from underneath their responsibility, send their kids off to government schools rather than educate themselves, or try private education. I remember one time that I had um, took my first pastorate here in Milwaukee at a different church, and a young girl in the youth group there came up to me to bemoan the fact that she didn't like it that the school she went to, which was a government school, was teaching the most base things about sex and sex ed class. That right there should bother you, that Christian parents allow their kids to be taught by other adults about sexual matters. An abdication of duty, where is your love for your son and daughter? So while she was bemoaning this to me, her mother comes up, notices we're talking in the hallway, people are all around, and she says, sees her daughter has this kind of upset look on her face and says, what's the problem? And the daughter explains what she was explaining to me, and the mother says, oh, well, you just have to understand. We cannot afford to send you to a private school. I don't have time to do homeschooling. Dressed her daughter down really hard. About two weeks after that, I went by to visit the family just to make a pastoral visit. And here's this massive boat in the driveway. And I'm not talking about some little rowboat or speedboat, you know, with a little engine through. I'm talking about something like, why isn't this thing parked at a marina somewhere size boat? Massive. And when I went in and then started talking with the family, I learned that's the boat they take up to their cottage, which is up north. So this family, which can't afford to private educate or the mother doesn't have time to homeschool, has money for property up north, owns a cottage, and has a boat the size of, yeah. It's a matter of priorities. Conservatives and Christians prop up, go along with, and worship this God of education, and it's sickening to watch. It is the God second only to the God of the almighty dollar. That's what the God of education is. Second only to the God of the almighty dollar here in America. And there are massive amounts of money attached to state education so that it often attracts the most base of men, not all, but most, and their love affair for this rotten form of education that has become an industry in this nation has been wed to yet another God of Americans, namely the God of sports. These are like three big gods here in America. Get rid of Mount Rushmore. Just put those three up there, right? Let's be honest. And so they bring all that fun, all that abdication of duty into the youth group minds. It makes them more readily accepting of the mindset of a youth group at church and how they function and what they're all about, which if you've ever been to one, Almost all of them are despicably pathetic. You have to be the biggest jokester and hipster available, you know, in order to be the youth pastor. It's all fun and games. It's all unreal. And to any serious-minded young person, it's like when they walk into a bar. Talk about phony, fake, plastic people. Same thing at the youth group. Phony, plastic, fake people. That's what any serious young person thinks when they see the idiocy that goes on with youth groups. 
And yet this is a rite of passage to most Christian parents. My kid has to have a youth group to attend. So they bring this whole mindset, this whole status socialist mindset to being readily able to accept youth group because they're both rooted in the same mindset. Socialism and statism. Understand again, neither the state nor the church can be a substitute for parents and family. Notice inherent in both of these first two reasons is that the youth groups aid and abet parents in negating their God-given duty to instruct and educate their children, and it separates families, separates sons and daughters from their parents, goes right in vogue with the whole mandated education system in America. Now, I have an excellent book called Critique of Youth Ministry, which was written way back in 1995. Our church was founded here in 1988. We've never had a youth group, never will have a youth group. I have a lot more to say still, so hold on to your saddles, right? But I remember this guy, Christopher Schlecht, wrote this. And when I read it, I was like, here's a kindred spirit. Here's a guy who's saying and thinking exactly what God had revealed and shown me regarding youth groups and why we should not have one at Mercy Seat. You can still get this work online, I think, for like four bucks. It's 21 pages, so anybody can read that, right? It's a powerhouse, and it's packed to the gills with good information, and it's put out by Canon Press out there in Moscow, Idaho, Doug Wilson and company. Here's what he said in one place in his book. He said, this new spotlight on time through... This new spotlight on time, though beneficial in many respects, shown in areas it shouldn't have. He's talking about how the history of the world didn't put a great emphasis on time until the last 175, 150 years. Prior to the mid-19th century, birthdays were neither mentioned nor celebrated. Age wasn't even included in the 1850 census. It simply wasn't considered to be important. It wasn't uncommon to graduate from a university at age 17 or age 28 or any age in between. Students matured at their own rates. What's more, there was no impetus to segregate based on maturity level. The one-room schoolhouse was the norm. Even in social gatherings, children who were considered to be miniature adults mingled with people much older than themselves. Horace Mann changed this first in the classroom by fastening students to a fixed learning pace consistent with the onset of evolutionary thinking. Progress had become synonymous with the passage of time. For the first time ever, students were segregated by age based on some dubious demographic norm. They would be judged ahead or behind their peer group. Interesting stuff here, and I'm going to read a little bit more from it. A third great reason why we don't have a youth group at Mercy Seat is because they promote immaturity. It's about fun and it's about being dopey. Understand, this is the third reason, youth groups are rooted in the idea and acceptance of adolescence. They're rooted in the idea and acceptance of adolescence, which if you do a little study, you will learn was founded in the writings of Granville, Stanley Hall in the early 1900s and is the product of evolutionary thought, literally. And I want to read a little spot out of here. But I will post in the details box of this sermon 
a couple sermons I did addressing adolescence. Okay, it's, it's, a, it's this age range that they've created, like from age 14 to 22. Although it seems to keep giving, it's probably 52 now. <laughs> it's grown over the years. You know, where you, you never grow up, you never take on responsibility. You're kind of in this no man's zone between being a little kid playing with Barbie dolls and G.I. Joe guys and an adult who actually gets off their butt and goes and works, right? Takes on responsibility. Anyways, I will put those in the details box. And here I want to read what Schlecht has to say briefly about Granville Stanley Hall. He says, at the turn of the 20th century, Granville Stanley Hall was championing his recapitulation theory using social applications of Darwin's work in biology. Hall suggested that individuals evolve through the same stages through which human history has evolved. Quote, the child repeats the race, unquote, he wrote. Quote, this is a great biological law, unquote. Hall associated infants and toddlers with pre-savage periods of human history. He consequently counseled parents and teachers to leave their young children to nature and encourage play, which fosters motor development. A crisis transition period led to the pre-adolescent years of 8 to 12, which were likened to the early pygmies and other savages. These children could be drilled and disciplined in school. He claimed that another period of crisis came at adolescence, which he deemed the most critical period in one's life. In 1904, in his greatest work, a two-volume tome titled Adolescence, its psychology and its relations to physiology, anthropology, sociology, sex, crime, religion, and education. They liked long titles back then. Hall viewed, Schleck goes on to say, Hall viewed adolescence to be the most important of his dubious stages, so important he believed that teens ought to be separated from those older and younger than them. Moreover, like most evolutionists, Hall also taught that each generation is or should be superior to the previous one and therefore needs to break free from those which precede it. In practical terms, this thinking has come to mean that rebellion is youth's destiny. Hall and many social psychologists after him, even continuing to the present day, viewed this rebellion as a positive thing. In short, G. Stanley Hall invented adolescence. That's a very excellent summary of what has taken place in America. Now, I want to make an appeal to fathers, to men, which, of course, breaks all the rules. I've already broken all the rules. I'm totally breaking all the rules. Okay, I'm not preaching a Mother's Day sermon on Mother's Day. And now I'm actually making an appeal to fathers on Mother's Day. So I have, I'm way off course here, right? But any good woman knows that anything that makes a man a better man is actually a great gift to her. <laughs> so, so this is actually a gift to the women, too, the fact that I'm appealing to men. And my appeal to you is simply this. If you neglect the familial duties Christ has given you as provider, protector, and priest, your children will suffer for it. And there's always a thousand reasons to neglect those duties. 
So often men let women take the lead on all the children's stuff. American Christianity, just like American education, is tailored towards females. That's not a mere opinion. That's a scientific, realistic fact. American Christianity, just like American education, is tailored towards females. And what is the end result? Kitty programs and youth groups that are soft, fuzzy, effeminate, and fun. Your input, men, is needed. Your manly traits and virtues are needed. Most men have one thing in mind. I take care of making sure there's bread on the table and they neglect everything else for the most part. That isn't the Christian worldview. Christian worldview is you don't let someone else raise your kids. Send them off to the nursery, the daycare, send them off to the government school, send them off to the brothel after that called university. No. You have a duty as fathers to engage with your children, to establish good government in your home and within the churches that you attend. Your input, as well as mom's, is so needed Yet because we live in a matriarchal hell in America, men doubt their neededness and abdicate their God-given duty. And that's a fact. Here's what Schlecht had to say about that. On page 16, he said, Effective youth ministry is the Father's task. Did you hear that, men? Effective youth ministry is the father's task. He has the responsibility to establish a godly atmosphere in the home. Fathers must be leaders in worship, prayer, reading and studying the Bible, and in fellowship with other saints. And I would add, in taking their children, their sons and daughters, out onto the streets, into the field of battle, wherever that may be, the legislative halls, the universities, wherever that may be, they have a duty to go there, take their children there, let them get the smell of battle in their nostrils. Moses demanded that fathers in Israel rear their children in such an environment that the majesty of God was plainly manifest to them everywhere they turned. This standard remains, and fathers today must meet it. If children do not come face to face with Almighty God in every aspect of their lives, their fathers, through abdication, are bringing them up in practical atheism. Strong words. Little said more a little more academically than Maxwell. I said, you're a moron. <laughs> you do all that, you don't do it, you're dumb. Where does this leave the modern church youth ministry, he asks? It has no place where fathers live up to God's demands. It has no place where fathers live up to God's commands. Where fathers have abandoned their responsibility, Churches should not focus on the abandoned children, but rather on the fathers. Massively important. You go out to the university, biggest response I get still, biggest response, any question I ask, what is your role and function as a man? Bam! You want interaction? Just ask that question. And they'll stop because they have no idea. Because it's been done by design for them to have no idea. Young men. 
to know what their role, function, and duty is as men. It's a matriarchal hell. It's an egalitarian poop hole that we live in. And it's had devastating effects upon men, devastating effects upon families, devastating effects upon society. You may ask, what about reaching youth who are not from Christian homes? This is the big thing I get from so many. Oh, we got to have our youth group so we can reach the people who, the kids who aren't in Christian homes. Even though if you go to most youth groups, everybody there is from a quote-unquote Christian home. And another thing I've noticed is youth groups continue to get smaller. You know why? Because the adults aren't having children. So they live in their little myopic Christian world, but they're one or two. Or if they're really crazy, they have three, right? But then they notice they don't get any thanks anymore. Congratulations on number three. So they rein that in real quick, right? Oh, you have a dark view of life, Pastor Matt. No, I have a dark view of American life because I've seen what it is. I know what God intended for man and for family, and I know what we have here today. It's like the woman who called the police on the cop show. Remember cops? She calls up the police. They come in, dad and son, teenage son and dad are fighting it out in the bedroom. Mom's crying and weeping. The police break them apart. And you hear her saying over and again, I don't know what caused this. Why has this happened? Blah, blah, blah. And as they're panning on the walls of the kid's bedroom, he's got every kind of filthy poster you can imagine up on the walls. It's like, get a clue. This thing is fixable. So when you understand God's ways and God's thoughts and you see a nation burning itself into the ground, it's a grievous thing. Understand that. And then all the Christians have to offer is a phony love where we have a little moose club and everybody joins in and does all their little dopey moose club things and then leaves. I don't even know why 98% of Christians even go to church. You look at what these churches are like. Visit one. Go to their website. See what's important to them. You're left asking yourself, does Christianity have any application to any area of your life? Is it truly just a moose club? Yeah, it truly is. It's disturbing. So for this matter of what about the youth who are not from Christian homes, we need a youth group because that you don't need youth groups. Rather, what you need is mature adults and families. That's what you need. Mature adults and families. Let them be around families, your family, that loves the Lord. Again, people love to abdicate their responsibility to the church or some church program rather than evangelize others themselves. I've done this in my home with neighbor kids, friends that come over that my kids know who don't know Christ. They meet him in various settings. Clara watched her pour into young people's lives coming over. It just happens with life. Let them see your family. Let them see you and talk. You don't need a youth group. Many ask me, do you have a youth ministry? I propose the proper question is rather, in what way are youth to be involved in ministry? Now, where's your youth group or where's your youth ministry? I propose the proper question is rather, in what way are youth to be involved in ministry? In every sort of way. The only thing we don't take young people to 
is homosexual gatherings. Because you can say the most filthy things to me all day long, and I don't care. But if you say those things to a child, to a young person, a young man, a young woman, still underage, still under the care of a parent, my own children, (laughs) you say those things to them, there are going to be some serious problems there. Yeah. Homosexuals aren't the little funny people that TV has made them out to everybody. It is debased thought, and they'll say the most filthy things to you imaginable. The reason most Christians are like, oh, you know, they can't even bring themselves to saying that homosexuality is a sin, unless you really push them into a corner. Then they'll say, okay, well, it is a sin, but we just got to love them, love them, love them, love them, love them. Whatever that means. It's a terrible thing. I've had more people who finally go out to us to a homosexual gathering to do ministry, actually show true love to them and point them to Christ. Everything's removed. What's been built by this society to think they're the nicest, funniest people the planet's ever seen. They're depraved. And they'll say the most filthy things to you. So anyways, other than going there, the youth go everywhere <laughs> that the adults go. And the youth go out on their own, too. You know, that's kind of a normal phenomenon. People kind of hang out with people in their own age group because they have a lot of commonality with their age group, with their peers that way. So, like, the young people go down to the death camp on their own. They do ministry. They go to the university on their own. They do ministry. They go out and lit drop at large gatherings or big parking lots. They go out and just preach the gospel together. That's what the young people at Mercy Seat do. So again, the question is, do you have a youth group or a youth ministry is not proper? I propose the proper question is rather, in what way are youth to be involved in ministry? And the answer is in every way. The only thing I hedge back on, if they're underage, is homosexual events. It would end up in a fist fight over that. Young people, like all groups, tend to hang out more with people in their age group, and they do ministry. And I could go on and on with the list. At our church, boys hang out with men. You know, you hit 13, uh, 12, 13, 14 years old, you don't go off to youth group, you hang out with the men. If you're a female, you hang out with the women. Titus 2 talks about the older men and the older women instructing and being a benefit to the younger men and the younger women. Amen? You see this throughout Scripture. The pointing is always to familial structures or the older and the younger. The younger being instructed by the older. I remember Boniface. Remember him? He took out young men into the field to do mission work. Understand what he did didn't replace the parents. Rather, it added to and complemented what the parents were building in their children's lives. And so with Mercy Seat and all the ministry we do, the young men and young women joining with the men and women, we are not replacing parents, but again, adding to and complementing what the parents are building in their children's lives. We do not separate them from older people. My children's experience with youth groups is very negative. Lots of nice people there, 
very little depth, like virtually none. My kids would always win the free prizes. Understand, the vast, almost all these people coming are from Christian homes. The majority are from Christian homes, by far. But my kids would win the prizes when they would do Bible quizzes and things like that. One kid, I mean, these prizes get pretty big nowadays. I remember my one son won, uh, won um, a tablet. It was like 200 and some dollars. It's all dumb stuff. It's meant to trivialize everything. It's all messed up. I would ask my children to ask the uh, youth pastor, leader of the youth group, after they'd report to me, oh, yeah, there's a lot of good people there and blah, 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 and look at what I got for free. <laughs> you know, they get their prize, right? So I could tell they were like, kind of like taken in by this. And so I told him, I said, you know, well, here's what I want you to do. Next week when you go there, ask the youth pastor, ask the youth leader, whichever the case was, can you go down to the abortion clinic and do ministry? Can the youth group go there and do ministry? Did this at many churches, many. I have a lot of kids, a lot of years, a lot of churches. Not one ever did. My kids were all, all of them were stunned by that. I told them, ask them what they think about homosexuality. They couldn't stumble over themselves enough to make excuses. How all sin's the same, how we should just love them. Anything but telling the truth about what the Word of God says regarding these matters. That was always a big eye-opener to my children about the youth groups. VCY show, I remember one time I was doing a Remember I used to host uh, In Focus every week on VCY? Remember I did one on secondary education and how it needs to be abolished. I remember a guy called in and said, families won't do what is needed, so mandatory education must stay in place. He's like, families won't do it. They won't do it. They won't teach their children, so we have to have this edict from the state. And kids have to go there. And I remember I responded to him, and I said to him, I said, um, actually, families have an incentive to make sure that their young do good. If their young don't do good, they're stuck with them like an anchor tied to their leg for the rest of their life. If they grow up and show some maturity and take on responsibility and become a man and a woman whatever the case may be, yeah. They go off and they establish their own home. That's the goal. The watchword at our house is self-government. I shouldn't have to be there with a whip in my hand telling you what to do. No, you should be learning so you can govern your own self. If you decide not to live in collusion with the statist hell that America is, you'll realize families have an incentive to make sure their young excel and do well, an incentive to make sure their young mature and take on responsibility. Listen to me now. It is the statist hell and welfare state that we live in that has caused families to abdicate their duties and responsibilities. And that's why a guy like that calls in and says, oh, they won't do it. Yeah, because of the statist hell they've created. If you live in defiance of their status designs, you and your sons 
you and your sons and daughters will taste what God intended for family government. This is very important. Very important stuff. You should build businesses with your sons and daughters. During those years, they don't need to go to youth group and do all the little dopey stuff, secondary education. When our kids turn 13, 14 years old, what do we do? We're done with sitting around doing schoolwork all day, half the day or whatever the case may be. We homeschooled all our children. You, you notice when you get to high school, you're relearning everything you learned in grade school. When you get to university, you realize the first two years are spent relearning everything you learned in high school. It's like, when do we ever move on? We're blue-collar stock, so we build businesses with our kids. They read books that had a huge impact on me and Clara's life, presuppositionally, and they write reports about them, and they get into whatever it is they feel God wants them to do, the gifting he's given them, the vocation he's called them to, the work that they do. And it doesn't mean that the work that they ultimately want to do will be the work they start with. But whatever they learn in the businesses we build with them, it, it builds their character. And it's something they can always do and raise a family with. Do you know how many people won't do that? Never would do that. That's too big of a risk. That's crazy. They just like the box that's been handed to them. And they wonder why it's the hell it is. It is so sad to watch. Here's the average thinking of your American parent. I've told this story before, but there's some of you probably haven't heard it, so I'll tell it again. Two of my sons started a window washing business when they were 15 and 17. Didn't have a driver's license yet, didn't have a vehicle. Business took off like crazy. Me and Clara lived in a car for like eight months, first year of the thing. So they got the driver's license, got a, their own vehicle. One day we were together, dropped them off, big home over in Heartland, went around the corner, garage sale. Know anything about Clara? We're stopping. There's a garage sale. Get out. We walk in. I'd rather be shot dead and left by the side of the road like a muskrat then go into a garage sale. I walk in there, I see nothing but odious junk. Everything I already own or who would buy that? Clara finds great treasures somehow in there. She does good. And so Clara's looking through the debris and this garage is massive. And this garage was about as big as this. Had like every bit of the square foot of my entire house. That's how big this garage was. And I remember there's this woman standing there, and she comes over to me, and she goes, hey, how you doing? And I go, good. And she goes, oh, you see anything you like? And I'm like, <laughs> I said, well, my wife wanted to stop because she's looking for what you have. And she go, I said, we were just in your neighborhood because we just dropped off our 15 and 17-year-old around the corner, and they started this window washing business and they're washing your neighbor's windows. 
And she looks at me and she goes, you know a 15 and 17 year old that'll work? And I just kind of snickered and said, yeah. (laughs) So we're talking about this window washing business and what my sons are doing. And she tells me, she says, I have a 16 year old son. He never works. None of his friends work. I can't get them to do anything. They just sit around and play video games all day. While we're talking, over comes this guy who's also at the garage sale, and he walks up and he says to me, pardon me, but did I hear you say that your 15 and 17-year-old started a window washing business? And I go, yeah. And here's what he says to me. Well, I just want you to know that I think you're a very irresponsible parent. And then he launches into this two-minute screed about how I'm robbing them of their childhood, making them grow up way too fast. Finally, when he takes a breath, I mean, it went on for like two minutes, and takes a breath, I look at him, and I've often learned that to ask a question in a hostile situation is a good thing to do. And so I simply asked him, I said, do you know how old the youngest Pony Express rider was? And you can see it all over his face, like... What does that have to do with anything I'm talking about? And then he finally says, no, I don't. I said, well, he was 11, and many of them were 13. I said, do you imagine how many federal laws they'd be violating today if we let that happen? And then I went into my two-minute speech about how we keep young men perpetually adolescent, never let them grow up, never let them take on responsibility, contribute to the family economy, to the economy at large, And while I'm speaking, the woman is behind the man, literally going like this. (laughs) Both arms out, both thumbs in the air, biggest smile on her face. And that's when I realized, this is her husband. (laughs) And that's why her son doesn't work. But understand, that is the mindset of the vast majority of Americans that these are your years to live, and they're really what they are is the most important years to develop for business acumen, for taking on responsibility, risking, achieving. Instead, we keep men in desks. Men don't like to be in desks. Women like to read more than men. That's just a general fact. I hold men accountable. You know that. You better learn to read, and you better like reading, you better read. <laughs> you know, that's I. They force men into these desks. They want to work with their hands. They want to do stuff. And they're forced into this. Didn't you see the bankruptcy? Didn't you view school as prison? It was a total prison. You couldn't wait till the bell went off at 3 o'clock. I know I never could. It's like, give me a... Who came up with this idea? This is an insanity. And so because everybody's just accepted this, people can't think outside the box and you're weird if you don't do it the way the box tells you to do it. We need to teach responsibility, how to talk to adults, not continue in adolescence, never allowing them to grow up. We do not need youth groups. We need men and women, fathers and mothers who live faithful to Christ, who don't just live as Americans, with the veneer of Jesus thrown on the top. Because that's how most Christian Americans live their lives. Could you hand me that hymnal, hon, real quick? 
Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Okay. So anyway. I'm used to the green one. Remember what we read, uh, sang this morning? And I always love that quote from Martin Luther. Christians don't have to tell lies. They sing them. <laughs> and um, here's what we sang this morning. I'm almost weeping as I'm up here singing this song. I don't know where you're at because... When I was a young man, all this stuff that I'm talking to you about, about no youth groups, no 501c3, doing ministry out on the streets, building a home with a good woman, these were all big. Now I'm on that tail end of things. I'm looking back. It says, oh, give us homes built firm upon the Savior, where Christ is head and counselor and guide, where every child is taught his love and favor and gives his heart to Christ the crucified. How sweet to know that though his footsteps waver, his faithful Lord is walking by his side. Absolutely powerful. Makes you want to look into the guy who wrote this and the history behind it. Second, oh, give us homes with godly fathers. Mothers, who always place their hope and trust in him, whose tender patience turmoil never bothers, whose calm and courage trouble cannot dim, a home where each finds joy in serving others and love still shines though days be dark and grim. Powerful stuff about the family. Number three, O Lord our God, our homes are thine forever. We trust to thee their problems, toil, and care. As every family can relate to all the, you can relate to all these things. Problems, toil, care. The one before that, patience, turmoil, never bothers. <laughs> we trust to thee their problems, toil, and care. Their bonds of love no enemy can sever. If thou art always Lord and Master there, be thou the center of our least endeavor. Be thou our guest, our hearts and homes to share. Amen. It's like a big desire. It's like a long prayer. Amen. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Hallelujah, Father. Father, I give thanks and I give praise to you for your goodness to us. We rejoice in you, O Lord. And we ask, Father, that you would use what I had to that what I had to say today, that you would use it for good in the hearts and minds of the hearers. Lord, as broken up as it was at times, or not articulated as well as I wanted, I just ask and pray that you would arrest the hearts of men, that they would see the importance of the things that were said here today, that they would look into them further, that they would establish convictions in their lives as to how their homes will be governed, the woman that they want to build a family with, they'll look for that kind of woman, oh God, who wants to do right by you. Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. And again, we ask that your blessings be upon all the, all the mothers in the church on this day. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
can be seated. And we're going to take communion at this time. 